Morning. Morning. Hope you're all well this morning. Hope you're all nice and cosy in here. It's nice and toasty, which is which is good. We have one of um, let's say we've got last message that I'm going to be preaching on Romans or expounding Romans in this church. Um, next time I preach, I'm, my hope and intention is to give you a good um, bird's eye view of the eight chapters. We're halfway through the book of Romans, chapter 8. There's another cha- eight chapters to go, and to be perfectly honest, I've got no idea when I'm going to get into those. But um, we started, started looking at this five years ago. It was in March 2011 when... Uh, when uh, the Lord gave me this, uh, this portion of the Bible to actually go through and, and preach on. And it's been a wonderful blessing. This is the 31st sermon on it. Nine of them so far in chapter 8. Which is, which is not bad. It's not bad. I thought it was going to be a lot. And then I, then I read that Thomas Manton actually did 44 sermons on chapter 8 of Romans alone. So that's more than one sermon per verse, actually. So anyway, it's been a wonderful blessing. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The title of the message this morning is More Than Conquerors. And you'll understand why as we we go into this beautiful portion of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 8. We're going to take our text from verse 28. And we're going to read that through to the end of the chapter. It says there, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah. You can't help but do a big amen to a text like that, can you? Let's open in prayer, can we? Father, what a word your word is. What an incredible joy. It is to not only read it, but to preach on it, to hear it, to hear it brought out, dear Lord, in its fullness, dear Father, that we ourselves, dear Lord, who are 
struggle with sin, dear Father, from day to day, that we look forward, dear Lord, to being reunited with you and, and to being a part of you, dear Father, but to know, dear Lord, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, something that we need to be reminded for every day. I ask you, dear Lord, and pray that you would be with us this morning, that as this word is expounded and brought out, dear Lord, to the fullest extent that I can possibly do, I pray, dear Father, that you would give me your grace, that you would help me, dear Father, preach it clearly. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to be able to receive the wonderful light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a, got a few, few things that I want to get through this morning with the text. Um, the first part of it is I, I just want to expound on what's there to be able to bring out just the doctrine. The, the second part, we're going to be noticing that uh, death is more than an enemy. The third is that we are more than conquerors. The fourth, that our victory is more than temporary. And the last, that we are indeed inseparable from God. When I, was, when I was reading the passage of Scripture, I couldn't help but notice that there, there's several lists that we actually find in the text. Um, and the first one I found was, was just, just in the first few verses, the first three verses there, that there's a list of identifying third-person pronouns. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you'll see it as we go in there, but there's at least seven of them. And, and it just says there, and we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And he says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then in the last verse he goes on and he says, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul provides for us a continuing re-emphasis on the nature of that salvation that's been attained by those who have trusted in Christ. Paul brings first out and in order um, those things that are in verse 29, that, that, that the things that God has purposed, in other words, what God has foredained for salvation. He brings that out first. Um, then, next in line, he says that it's for what God has also appointed. In other words, that which he's predestinated. That's what he's predestined. We've been predestined for salvation. We spoke about that last time. And then finally, the calling of them, which is the gospel itself. And that's what's used by us as we share the gospel with people. We are effecting God's call to them. That's what the gospel is. So every time you share the gospel with something, that's what you're doing. God is using you and I to call people into, a, into that salvation which is in Christ. That's his work. Now we don't know who will respond. We don't know when they'll respond. We don't know if they're going to be responding right there and then. We don't know if they're going to put up the hand and say, this far but no further. I don't want to hear any more. You know, We don't know when your word is actually going to have an effect in their lives. There's a story many, many years ago when the pilgrims were moving into the United States of America when they took their, 
their ship and they were and there was a whole bunch of ships that were actually making their way across uh, the Atlantic and heading to the US and there was a great preacher who he 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 had his call to first preach the gospel to all who were going across and back then there was such a reverence for the gospel and such a reverence for the word of God that the shipmaster would hold the ship until he was finished his sermon on this particular occasion there was a young boy 15 years of age standing with his family and he was there and he was listening to the gospel that man was expounding well fortunately or unfortunately the gospel went on for such a great length of time that they missed the tide so they had to wait another period of hours before the ship could sail but the young boy heard the gospel he heard it clearly expounded he heard it as clear it could be heard but he never responded matter of fact he lived the next 84 years of his life in rejection of the gospel he lived a life that was not glorifying to God he lived a fairly debauched life but he managed to reach the 99th year of his life when the word that he heard at the age of 15 came back to him and he believed and was saved he died six months later you never know when what you share with someone today doesn't matter how hard their heart is today that's the call that's God calling them into salvation that's what you're doing Paul said he made it clear you know I've planted one has watered but it's God that brings the increase and that's all we're doing we're planting watering and God brings the increase that's the call of God for those that are his but Paul doesn't stop there at verse 29 he continues on and he speaks about that which naturally now follows in verse 30 He says, moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. What you have here is Paul making absolutely clear that all who God has foreknown, he will glorify. He brings them from one point when he has made that determined decision within his mind, who he will foreknow. Those he will glorify. And again, we've got that in that passage before us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he provides for us another list. Here we've got another list. Now it's a list of seven questions. Some of them are rhetorical. Some of them have their answer built within them. And he says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. What a great train of logical thought that he's putting forward there. Paul said it all with a series of questions and he's done it so perfectly that so naturally one thing can be concluded from another. Um, And I've got to ask the question that how is it possible that some could think that 
the security, the salvation that's been secured to them by Christ can be temporal or can be lost. There's people who believe that salvation is somehow fickle, that somehow salvation can be lost by something that I might do wrong, that somehow my own sin, now that I am in Christ and born and bought by the blood of Christ, I can lose that which He secured for us. How can you do that when you read a passage like this? How can you believe that when you read a passage like this? I don't know how much clearer Paul can make it. Matter of fact, he makes it even more clear in the last list. So we've got seven, a list of seven in the first three verses, another list of seven questions in the, in, the, in the second portion of six verses. We're going to skip verse 37 for a moment and you'll understand why. But in the last, there is a list of ten. Ten. There's ten negations that Paul puts forward. Ten things that he says makes really clear um, he believes impossible to separate us from the love of God. He says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing here is left to your imagination. Paul doesn't just stop with those other things that have gone before. He then starts, starts speaking about nothing able to be able to separate us from the love of God. First, he deals with death and life. Well, there's not a lot outside of death and life, is there? You know, you wouldn't think that there's a lot of outside of death and life. But then he also brings out the spiritual realm. Now, there's no question that prior to your being saved, the spiritual realm, the demonic elements that are out there, can indeed keep you separated from the love of God. There are people that are bound today who are deceived and even demonically possessed. That didn't just go away in the New Testament. It didn't go away in the New Testament. It abounds today. Matter of fact, I've heard it said that if the music industry had lost its demon possession, the entire industry would fall down and collapse. Okay? And to me, I don't doubt that one moment. And I've, I've got plenty of quotes by musicians themselves who speak about being possessed of something else when they are up on stage. I've got plenty of quotes of musicians themselves who say that there's another member of the band who actually writes the lyrics for us. You know, I've got... That abounds. It abounds. So there is no doubt that a demonic influence can certainly separate those who are not Christ's from Christ. But it can't you who are his. He makes that clear. He says, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. So now having dealt with life and death, and having dealt with the angelic realm, he then moves on to time. He says, nor things present, nor things to come. Now that's really interesting in and of itself that he says not things present nor things to come because there's a bunch of Christians and there's a lot of people out there that believe that my sins, my past sins, were all forgiven. But now, my present sins and my future sins, oh, I need to deal with those myself. Isn't that interesting? How the past is not dealt with by Paul here because that's a given, isn't it? What does he deal with here? He deals with the present and the future. He says, no, not the present, nor the future. Not things present, nor things to come. How interesting. How interesting how Paul puts that together. 
automatically, straight away, he's already stopping your argument. He's stopping your argument. Fourthly, he comes to dimensions, height and depth. That's interesting in and of itself because there's only two of them mentioned here. We know of a third. We know of breadth. That's not mentioned. We don't know exactly what that's referring to. Is it referring to heaven and hell? Is it referring to that realm? I don't know. But he does refer to dimensions. And finally, in case we could consider anything else in existence to separate us from the love of God, he tells us, nor any other creature. That is, nor any other created thing shall separate, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How incredible that is. Does it not make any It makes sense now why verse 37 seems to stand out? Because, see, verse 37 doesn't seem to fit in the first list of seven. And it doesn't seem to fit in the second list of questions. And nor does it fit with the negations that are here. But it seems to stand out as the concluding element of them all. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That was the introduction. We get into the sermon now. The first point is that death is more than an enemy. Death is more than an enemy. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In the beginning of our chapter, it tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It happens right at the beginning of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. A condemnation which most people are in today. Most people are in that condemnation. But this condemnation won't come to pass, won't be realised until death. Okay, Death is that which will realise that condemnation. And interestingly for us, uh, death also realises our salvation in its complete form. Death becomes itself a portal to which condemnation is realised. Okay, that's that entry point. Our text says that we are more than conquerors. It makes the claim that there is, with it, something that must be conquered. Something that needed to have been conquered. An enemy of sort has been defeated. To the Christian, that enemy is defeated even now. Even now. To those who are born again and saved, that enemy is defeated even now. But to those who are not Christ, that enemy remains. And to them, that enemy is death itself. Think about it. There's no greater enemy to mankind. Mankind has an immortal enemy. And that enemy itself is death. It's the greatest of all enemies. There can't be thought of any enemy greater than death. The Christian will not. It's not that the Christian himself won't taste of death. I'm not speaking about our physical death as as if we're not going to experience it. We are going to experience physical death. And it doesn't also mean that a Christian will have an easier death than anybody else. Okay? That doesn't follow either. Okay? Christians can have terrible deaths. They've been burnt to flames. They've been burnt at the stake. They've been crucified. There is no... You ever heard that expression when people say, well, you know, at least he died peacefully. 
You ever heard that expression? People say at least he died peacefully as if that gives them an indication that the end after that is also going to be peaceful. But there is no comfort in someone dying peacefully. There's no comfort that they will have an end that will be anything but torment for all eternity. So someone dying peacefully doesn't give you that answer. Many people have died violently who know the Lord, you know. And we know that as Christians. Many people now, today, are dying violent deaths who know Christ. So the manner of death doesn't give you the answer. But for the Christian, the Christian will not suffer that end which death brings with it. That end that the Bible refers to as damnation. Death, then, is the great enemy which has lost its victory over us. It's the reason why the Bible elsewhere tells us, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Have a look at this portion of text that you can see it for yourself that um, we're referring to death as being something, uh, something incredible that no longer affects those who are born again, those who are Christians. It's really interesting because death is something that's feared by the vast majority of people. The only people that don't fear death are either those who are born again or those who are deluded thinking that there is nothing to fear after death. That's the only two lots of people that don't fear death, you know. Um, but it is something to be feared if you're not in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll take our text from verse 53. As Paul is giving an explanation of the gospel here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if you know the text, you'll understand what I'm referring to. And he says in verse 53, for this corruptible, that is this, this physical body that I have, that is able to be, that is corruptible, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. What, what, what is it that you would do if you knew that you couldn't lose? You know? To live is Christ. To die is gain, Paul says. You know? What an incredible position. Someone comes to you and puts a gun to your head and says, do this or die. What, you give me the entrance into eternity? Praise God, I've got no problems with that. But your problem, yeah, amen. But for that soul, that soul that would pull the trigger, your heart should mourn for. Because to them is entered in an avenue which they may not have a chance to escape. And they are who we burden our hearts for. It's for them who are lost. Each one of us have people from time, one time or another who would do us harm. But if those people don't know Christ, why anger yourselves over it? Your heart should pity them and break for them. 
You need to pray for them that they would know Christ. You know? That is the error. You know, we, we, we sit there and we, we, we get all angry and upset about what's happening in the Middle East, about these men so, so demonically possessed and so deceived in their own selves that they would take off the heads of other people, children, women, anybody who comes across their path. We find ourselves getting angry when we should find ourselves being mournful, not for those who are lost, not for those who are lost, but to them a greater interest is bringing it brought to the Lord but for those who are doing the deed. But, you know, one day, death will die. Death is now the immortal enemy of man. But there will be a day, a time, where death itself will be destroyed. You've got to remember that death came into the world by sin. Right? It's temporary. It's that temporary element that's come into this world that will not remain. It can't remain. If you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, go back to verse 20. Go back to verse 20. And it says says there in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule, all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is our enemy. Death is the immortal enemy of man. Death is also the great separator. We think that it separates us just from life. Well, to those who are born again, we have life. Nothing can separate our life. Yet, death is the great separator. We read in our passage that at the very end... Uh, those who have humbled themselves and trusted in Christ to save and to secure their souls, that not even death can separate them from the love of God. We read in the Gospel of John that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, And we, we read in the same passage that, um, that those are born again. They are born in Christ. In Romans chapter 2, the opposite occurs to those who aren't in Christ. In Romans chapter 2, they store up wrath until the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So those who are Christ shall not be separated from him, but those who are not Christ, every day that they live their lives, they're storing up wrath against the day of wrath. They're doing it every single day. They are now separated from the love of God, but God... So love the world, including them. What am I saying? I'm saying that for as long as you live, God always continually shares His love, makes known to you His love. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's God in creation demonstrating to you that He is, number one. 
But number two, the gospel being presented to you shows you God's love for you. That love will be continual right up until the day of your death. But once, once that flickering flame of life is extinguished and you have rejected God, then death becomes the great separator. It will now separate you from the love of God for all eternity. For all eternity. And that's a serious thing. Matter of fact, it's more serious than you can possibly know. We've thought about and we've spoken about a purpose for our lives. There is no other purpose other than sharing that gospel of grace. There's nothing, no greater calling. There's no higher calling for you to do so. You know, we do it in whatever way we can, whatever capacity we can, whether it's handing out a tract, whether it's speaking a kind word, whether it's praying. Do you know how many people are supported by your prayers? I had a lady that came to me in a church in Ballarat who said, I'm just so fearful of sharing the gospel. I'm so frightened to do it. And I, I can relate to that. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's a scary thing, you know. And I said to her, you know, you can pray. You can pray. God moves through prayer. No one will come to the Lord but by prayer. They have to be prayed for because they're blinded. Their eyes are blind. So, all men agree on one thing. They agree on what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, 27. The first part of it at least. They agree that it is appointed unto men once to die. They agree with that. They agree with that. Everybody agrees with that. There's nobody that doesn't agree that we will all die. What they don't agree with is the second part of that verse, which says, but after this, the judgment. But after this, the judgment. The next point, we are more than conquerors. Verse 37 again says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar crossed what was known as the Rubicon River. It was the most northern river, or the most northern boundary of Italy at that time. And the saying goes, uh, when you cross the Rubicon, is when you cross the Rubicon. It's like crossing the Jordan, we cross into war, we cross into battle, right? Um, and it was known at that particular time that once you entered into the Rubicon, or once you crossed that Rubicon, you entered into battle with the, uh, with the Romans, Okay. Julius Caesar took his horse and he went straight into the water and when he went into the water he had that famous saying, the die is cast. The die is cast. So we've got two interesting sayings that are, that are brought to pass just by one individual entering into a war with the Romans. Cross the Rubicon and the die is cast. In other words, I've made my play. And he went in there because he had a general by the name of Pompey that he was... Um, that he was going to fight with and from there once he defeated Pompey he got into Rome and he set up the treasury and did all that work and then he went into Egypt and battled there and he went into Syria and battled there and he sent back a message to the Roman council and it was a message that just contained three words and it was simply vieni, vidi, vici which simply means I came, I saw I from that point on and from history past, many people have entered into their own battles and they themselves have conquered. They've won the victory that they can claim was their own. 
They fought the good fight and they won. They won themselves and they claimed the victory and they conquered. It continues on today. It continues on in so many different ways. But they gave themselves those accolades. They were generals or leaders, kings. We find the same thing with, I don't know, those who are in movies, they give themselves the accolades of what they've done. Songwriters and singers give themselves their awards of the things that they've achieved for themselves. They've conquered. They've conquered those peaks. Businessmen, they get to the top and I've conquered. I've made it. I've made it. I've done what I've set myself out to do. But the Bible says we are more than conquerors. And what's really interesting is that um, we didn't really do anything. We didn't really do anything. We simply believed. Christ is the one who has done it all for us. It's not my blood that was shed. It's his blood that was shed. And it was shed for me. You know, Julius Caesar can claim his own victory. Perhaps, perhaps not. But we can't claim that that we have secured that salvation. Christ has. Yet, yet, the text tells us that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors because, you see, salvation wasn't your effort. Brethren, if salvation was your effort, you'll discover that it'll be your effort that will take you out of that privileged position. Make sense? Isaiah 25 Verse 8, prophesied this, he says, that he will swallow up death in victory. That's where we had that, that text from in the New Testament. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. What was our, what was our role in the battle for our souls? We believed. We trusted in Christ. We trusted in Christ. But there are so many who are kept from that eternity. There's so many who are kept from that blessed salvation, that hope that is in Christ, because they want to go up another way. They want to climb in another way. They want to go to the wedding feast wearing their own attire and not the attire of the bridegroom. That's what they want to do. They're like the women in Isaiah chapter 4 that shall take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. That's what they are. And so many Christians or so many people who aren't Christians are thinking that that's the way in. It's got to be my effort. I need to have some role to play. That's why the belief is there that you can lose your salvation because there has to be something of you that has something to do with it. But brethren, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. It's Christ that's done the work, not us. Not us. We're born again by the blood of God. And by the Spirit of God. Man's born again. What a, what a weird text. The idea of being born again. But the text is simple in John chapter 3. He says that you've been born of water. You need to be born of the Spirit. Every man is born of water. We're all born by the flesh. We're all born of water. We need to be born by the Spirit of God. But there's an unbelievable passage there in 1 John chapter 5. And it says this. It says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 
Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he, Jesus, that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. How interesting that is. So we're all born of water. But God is Spirit. And yet, God was manifest in the flesh. See, Jesus had to be born of water and blood. He had to, because he needed to die in order to defeat death. We need to be born of the Spirit, and we believe in the work that he's done. That's what secures that salvation. That's what brings us into this beautiful unity with God. Next point. Our victory is more than temporary. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I love history. I've got a fascination for history. I'm a bit of a history buff and I was like that when I was a kid. Um, there, was a, there was a young boy born and he was born in 356 BC, so the history books tell us. And his father was a king, not a great king, not a, nothing special about him as a king. He certainly had some influence. And this king was a king of Macedonia, a little, a little, little country there. Um, he brought his son up in wonderful privilege. The son was brought up with a great education. He was actually taught by Aristotle, personally. This young boy, at the age of 16, got told by his father to go and fight a battle. So he brought a large group of men. And at the age of 16, he won a wonderful victory. He did the same thing at the age of 18. At the age of 20, he became king because his father was assassinated. The young boy's name was Alexander, Alexander the Great. He was 20 years of age when he became king and he started his conquest of Persia, of Egypt. Persia includes what's now Iran, Iraq, part of that Mesopotamian area there. That was all part of his conquest. He even made some inroads into China and into India part of India, which is, now, which is now Pakistan. He conquered, effectively, a good part of the known world at that time. Um, he reached the highest peak at the age of 33, well, 32, roughly, 31, 32. Um, there's a story, and we can't seem to find the source of it. I believe that it's in Plutarch, but it's not, um, that he, he wept and said that there were no more worlds to conquer. He was a bit upset. But he died. He died in a drunken stupor. He died of alcohol poisoning in some form or another. Some people believe that he was assassinated, which is probably likely as well. But the point is that he was the greatest um, military commander of all time. Even today, his military victories are studied. And he had incredible victories. Yet those victories lasted only as long as his life did. Victory has lasted for as long as his life. Our victory is eternal. The victory that we've secured is forever. It won't, won't die by the passage of time. Time isn't our enemy. You know? Time is not our enemy. The psalmist tells us that thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom... And thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. If you ever wanted to know a little bit more about the history of Alexander the Great, really good book to turn to is Daniel. 
Daniel actually spoke about Alexander the Great 200 years before he was born. An incredible passage that it is, and you'll find it in chapters 7, chapter 8 and chapter 11 of Daniel. A lot of interesting information with regards to it. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We think about people that have yeah, the incredible victories that people celebrate. You know, the footy teams won the grand final. You know, uh, the World Cup soccer. You know, they're all, mate, they're so wrapped. What a victory, you know. Time has a way of being able to dispel most of those victories. You know, next year it starts all over again. You know what I mean? But, mate, what a rejoicing that they have. What a rejoicing that they have that they've won that victory. Then you have Christians sometimes. Yep, won the victory. Yep, secured for all eternity. Oh boy, am I happy. <laughs> you know? It's intriguing. But we rejoice over one sinner that's, uh, that turns to the Lord. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Look down to verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion... And the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. How incredible is that? In Second Peter chapter 1, um, while Peter is encouraging the believers to add further to their faith, to abound in Christ, and to not be barren nor unfruitful, he commands in verse 10... Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. We've spoken about that in times past. We've spoken about how even though you might believe yourself to be a Christian, make sure of your faith. Make your calling and election sure. Know that you are saved. Know that you are Christ. For many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, we have done this and that in your name. But he never knew them. Now there are people in this church who are in danger of that. I know that just by basic statistics. Make your calling and election sure. But then he goes on here. Then he goes on here. And he says, he says and makes clear in verse 10. So he says, Whether the rather brethren, wherefore the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. Then he says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Victory found in this world is but temporary. But our victory in Christ endures from the day your life is given to Him for all eternity. Those who are not Christ's, I have no victory. Those who are not Christ's, their death will seal their faith. And they will enter into the area where even Dante said in his poetic dirge, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. While we have life, we have hope. While there is life in the people that you pray for, there is hope. 
and it doesn't matter whether they are the greatest atheists of all. If Anthony Flew, who was the great sceptical atheist of the 1960s, can come to know that God actually exists, we've got hope for even people like Richard Dawkins. You know, we do. We have hope for them. If Paul can come to the knowledge of Christ, being the very persecutor of the brethren, guys, I know this is going to sound fanciful, but you can even have hope for Obama. You know, it's possible. Sorry, political satire. Sorry, sorry, political satire. No place in the pulpit. Sorry, I apologise. The last point. So this point was our victory is more than temporary, it's everlasting. The last point is that we are inseparable. We are inseparable. We'll read from 30, verse 37 to 39. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in existence can separate us from God. If you are more than conquerors, what trial can harm you? If all things work together for good to them that love God, what bad event is there that stays bad? If God is indeed for you, what man is there whose devices can stand against you? And if you are justified by God, who is it that can rightly condemn you? Who is it that can rightly condemn you? Can you even be justified in condemning yourself? Oh, I just don't feel saved. You know, if I'm saved, why do I do these things? Why do you mourn if you're not saved? Why do you mourn it? Why are you broken hearted for sin if, you're not, if you don't know Christ? I don't know about you, mate, but before I knew Christ, I couldn't care less about my sin. Didn't have a problem with it at all. People say, well, don't you feel guilty? No. Don't feel guilty? I don't feel anything, really. As long as no one else knows, you know, I'm alright. Uh, now being Christ, it doesn't matter who else knows anything. It matters that my Lord knows, and I mourn. I mourn. Why? Because there's a spirit within me that is a new spirit. I, don't longer, I, I no longer desire to do the things that I used to do. And when I do enter into them, it mourns me and it breaks my own heart. Because the things that I would, I do not. And the things that I would not, that I do. You know? But I can't be justified in, con- in condemning myself. It's going to be my word against God's. Who am I going to believe? I don't know about you, but I've been wrong before. You know? If death itself has lost its sting, tell me what it is that can harm you. There are going to be times, brethren, that you're going to feel despondent. There's going to be times where things are going to get the better of you. Life is going to get the better of you. There are going to be times where this world and its turns and its events and its election results, etc., may grieve and may mourn you. There will be decisions that are going to be made that are going to be continually against the truth of God. The world is turning into a basket case. We can see that. Why? Because it's lost its moorings. It's lost its foundation and no longer has a basis for what is true, for what is right, for what is wrong. And we can't even speak truth to these people because we are arrogant or we're seen as bigoted or anything like that. Yet they don't see themselves that way. The world will mourn you. But... All these things, 
all these things. You know, it's really interesting. We seem to hold on to Christ just more tightly. You ever heard that, that story about the man, the, the parachute and the aeroplane? And he's given a parachute and he's actually told, this one's going to make your journey a lot more comfortable. Right? Which is what modern Christianity teaches today. So the guy's sitting in the aeroplane and he is not comfortable. Now he's not this far away from the seat in front of him. He's this far away from the seat in front of him. And he's very uncomfortable. And soon enough, he ends up taking it off because this is not a comfortable journey. Okay? The other man is actually told that this parachute will actually save your life should the plane go down. Well, better put that on, just in case he's got it all buckled on nice and tightly. Turbulence happens within his life on that plane. What does he do? Abandon the, the parachute? No, he holds onto it more tightly. And that's what we need to do as Christians. We hold on to Christ that much more tightly. We hold on to him. He'll never let go of us. But we've come in closer to him. We are inseparable from God. He is ours. We are his. We are joined together. We are part of his family, his children. Death is more than an enemy. You are more than conquerors. Your victory is more than temporary. And you are inseparable from God. What would you do for Christ if you knew that you cannot fail? You can't fail, brethren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the victory, dear Lord, that you have secured for us, for the hope, dear Father, that you have given to us, for the joy, dear Lord, that we have been able to bountifully rejoice in. I pray, dear Father, we would indeed, dear Lord, know that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even ourselves, not even what we would tend to do from time to time. But this, dear Lord, is not a time of mourning, Father, for us. This is a time of rejoicing and a time, dear Lord, that we can get up and that we can go and do exactly what you have called us to do. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would give us the boldness and the courage and that you would open our eyes and that we would not forget Sunday when it comes to the rest of the week. That we would know, dear Lord, what you have given to us, dear Lord, as we do our working week, dear Father that we would share that wonderful gospel of grace. Let us draw near to you every day. In Jesus' name we give you thanks and pray. Amen. Amen.